This podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. Let's face it, your code is going to have errors. Even code written by an amazing, outstanding, meticulous developer such as you. I know. But when bad things happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error, uptime, and cron monitoring into a single, easy-to-use platform, saving you time and cash. Sustain listeners get 30% off for six months. Simply mention Sustain when signing up, and they'll apply the discount to your account. No credit card required. Use Honey Badger. It'll make your DevOps awesome. Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where are we come from? Where are we going? Where are the bodies buried? Actually, that last question is a favorite of Denise Cooper, who is here calling from her home in West Counties of Ireland. Denise, how are you doing? I'm great. Awesome. We also have on this call Pia Mancini calling from Spain. Pia? Hey, everyone. So... Denise has done a lot of stuff in her life. She's seen a lot of things change over the years. It's hard for me to even start understanding where to begin explaining for a short bio what you do here. So I know currently you're working for Nearform and that after this call, you have something to do with InnerSource Commons. Can you talk a bit about both of those things? Sure. I do have kind of a crazy resume and... That's a testament to how wild and woolly the tech industry was when I started because, you know, my degree's in French literature, right? <laughs> but I nevertheless got to have all those jobs. And my last sort of big tech job was PayPal, where we started talking about InnerSource. They hired me to help them do open source work, you know, run an OSPO. And in reviewing the possibilities, it came to me that they weren't really ready to do proper open source. They sort of were trying to do it for the wrong reasons and therefore none of it was going to actually redound to the greater glory of PayPal the way they were headed. So I decided they needed to learn how to collaborate first. And I knew about InnerSource because as you alluded to, I've been around a long time and InnerSource is something we talked about, you know, back in the early 2000s. And so I decided to take a career risk and start talking about it again. I also, coming into PayPal, told them that I was only going to be there around four years because I didn't really want to take a job with one more tech company. I had a consultancy that was, you know, successful and thriving. And they basically made it, you know, hard to say no by taking away all my opportunity costs, you know, (laughs) and allowing me to keep my consultancy open while I worked for them. So those two things were pretty compelling. But at the end of the day, I knew that my time with them was going to be limited. And that's good to create a forcing function like that for yourself. I find it really creates motion. You know, you don't wait as long to try things because you because the clock is ticking. But as I was leaving, it was clear to me that I was going to my next job was going to be um, overseas in Ireland. And so Nearform met me because of my work for PayPal on Node.js. The Node.js community was having some trouble in 2014 when I joined. And we created the Node.js Foundation at the Linux Foundation and convinced the fork to find its way back into the mainstream upstream. And, and in doing that, I became the first chairperson. And that's how Nearform met me. 
and they offered me a job. I had developed a couple of offers because I always believe in doing that. You know, you don't want to just make make a, a knee-jerk decision. And I picked Nearform because I liked the ethic of what they were doing. They're a consultancy that is based in a really unlikely place. Um, Ireland, usually people who have good ideas in Ireland end up leaving to get VC money somewhere else because this country doesn't do a good job of offering that yet. But moreover, this guy wanted to improve his local community. They, they we're headquartered in Tremor County, Waterford. And no, there's nobody doing what we're doing, you know, in a remote part of Ireland like that. But it's our CEO's belief, and he's a big believer in open source, they contribute around 40% of the total changes to the core of Node every year. So, you know, they do some major open source giving back. And along with believing in open source, he believes that it doesn't matter where you live anymore because of the internet. And so our team is distributed all around the world. He hires for capability, not for proximity. And, and I thought that was super interesting. And also his decision to stay in Ireland was really interesting. So that's why I'm there. And it's been great. This year, we wrote the COVID tracing app that is being used throughout Ireland and also now the most popular one in the world since we donated it to the Linux Foundation's public health project. So that's my job. As, as always, so many different threads I want to follow up on. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for that overview. One Welcome. of the things I was really curious about is you talk about inner source as a very solid thing, and you talk about open source and as being related. How do they both work together to actually sustain open source? Sure. So inner source is a term that was actually coined by Tim O'Reilly in 1999, 2000, somewhere in there, to distinguish the practice of using open source methods inside a proprietary situation from public open source where the code is visible to everybody. And it's aside from the fact that it's inside a firewall, it should be virtually the same as doing open source work. At its best, that's what it does. And it has the potential to, first of all, help modernize stodgy old engineering practices, places where ownership is overemphasized um, and you know, it's a reasonable thing to emphasize ownership at some point in the life of a project, but it becomes a problem if the people that have that ownership then don't want to share their information, it can become a real liability for companies. But also more and more companies are wanting to engage with open source. They get it that they need to contribute, but they also get it that they don't know how. And because the mechanism that we use to enforce proper behavior in open source is public shaming, essentially, they're a little nervous about getting it wrong. So inner source is a way for them to learn how to collaborate effectively and have a better sense of how open source is going to feel before they put their brand on the line by being public about an open source project. And my, this is my theory. I was a consultant. I had a good consulting practice. In fact, Tim O'Reilly was feeding me my clients mostly. So I had, you know, it was easy for me. But the number of clients that were actually capable of doing proper open source was getting smaller and smaller. And I started to believe that all the big companies made before Google that were going to figure out open source under their own steam had already done it. And the ones that were left were ones that couldn't get to it for cultural reasons mostly. 
So it seemed the right thing to do to offer the intermediate step of doing intersource to, you know, clean up your internal practice before you try to go out into the world. And it could only make it better for, you know, the engineers working in those companies, in, in my opinion, right? When I made the decision to start talking about it at PayPal, partly I was concerned about sustainability. And you'll remember that I actually convened the first SustainOS meeting while at PayPal. And Pia, you came to it because Tim dragged you in <laughs> to talk. Let us crash your meeting. <laughs> yeah, talk about uh, Open Collective. And that was, that was a great thing, right? But I, I, we convened that meeting because I had real concerns and I suddenly had a deep pocket behind me about the likelihood that we were going to survive the next wave of change. Because we'd gotten to a plateau. By the time I started at PayPal, open source had won in the marketplace. Everybody was talking about it. But now we were going to have a whole new raft of contribution and a whole new raft of trying to rescript what open source is effectively to uh, shelter business models. And we, we saw that. You and I survived that together, Pia. <laughs> That's not the last one we're going to have, right? Because that was about the third one that I lived through. So that's going to keep happening as new industries come online, as people retry ideas that were tried once before. I'm doing that with Intersource. But the reason I thought it was the right time is because open source had won. My observation is change is always hard. In large corporations, there tend to be people who are kind of career workers who are very comfortable with the game as played and don't necessarily welcome a change because A, it's scary. Now this is, I'm overgeneralizing. There certainly are always people we run into who who can't wait for something like Intersource, but there are a lot of people who push back. And in the 2000s, it was super easy to push back. They could just say, hey, open source isn't gonna win, right? But now that open source has won, they have to be a little bit more transparent about their motives. Because their real motives are usually this isn't going to make my life better. And, and the reason it isn't is because they're wizards and they don't like to t- share their tricks. And this is going to somehow make them less essential to the company because everybody will know their secrets. Or the, they know their code is not very well written or not very well maintained from a quality perspective. And they're not anxious to have other people discover that. <laughs> or uh, there's a lot of other variants. but. Now people have to be a little more transparent and that's a good thing, I think. So, so anyway, the sustainability quotient, there are not enough practitioners of open source. It seems like there are a lot, but there just literally are not enough. It's not taught in schools formally very often. It's definitely not being practiced in most of the people's companies who produce software, right? And so I think about 85% of the engineers in the world are still stuck in the salt mines, as I like to say. And I feel like this area of endeavor has been so generous to me, giving me a means to make a living and an interesting means to make a living for this last 35 years. I kind of owe a give back of something to make the campground better than I found it. And I think that that is intersource, getting those poor 85% out of the salt mines. <laughs> And helping companies modernize now, because in another 10 years, they won't be able to hire people that don't expect transparency. So they're going to have to figure it out. But if they figure it out now for the right reasons, they have a better chance of being in a good position to accept those new workers when that's all you can hire. 
It's, right. it's almost like it's like, you know, the, um, an experiential process, right? It's like we need to learn by doing, right? Like that's the way we absorb. And it seems like InnerSource is giving um, companies this possibility of learning by experience, like learning by being. And that's the only way that you can actually absorb, right? And learn. That's right. But also it's, it's shocking, but maybe not surprising. In the early days of open source, and open source only counts from 1998 because that's when the term was coined. But of course, there's a good 15 years before that, that free software was happening. In that arc, Microsoft and others, but I'm going to call them out because they were the most visible to me, did a fair amount of FUD sowing, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Let's make sure that people don't adopt this thing that, that could damage our business model, their old business model. We're going to tell a bunch of lies about how it all works. We're going to call some issues into question. Here now, 20 years later, and open source has won, I still hear those 20-year-old fake stories about why people are afraid. So number one story I hear when we talk about InterSource, I don't want to have to accept crap code because they don't understand that open source is about saying no to crap code, <laughs> right? It's about mentoring better code. So that's the first one. The second one is it won't be secure if it's transparent. That is an old tuna, but it's still stinking up the closet, you know? And then the third one that I hear over and over again is it's not going to scale. We can't go as fast as we do now. But, you know, nevertheless, open source communities managed to out-implement proprietary communities all over the world with asynchronous workers who don't work for the same company. So how is it that it's going to keep you slower, <laughs> right? But we hear those things and the real fears, and they tend to be real fears by career engineers, many of whom have taken management tracks to be responsible for something in order to you know, forward their careers. And they're working with a combination of how do I keep everybody employed and how do I you know, not upset the apple cart so far that we're not productive enough and we all get fired because, you know, we're not meeting the prime directive of shipping the software. And, and those are fears that you can address. You can give people experiences, safely controlled, small experiments that prove to them that those are unfounded fears if they do what they're supposed to do, you know, and follow all the parts. But it's amazing how people want to circumvent with what they know. So for instance, we work basically the same way that Apache works. So we have this concept of trusted committers. Trusted committer is a senior engineer who knows everything about the affected code base and is going to effectively be the mentor and code reviewer for any patch that's going to get merged. So they're taking personal responsibility for the quality of contributions that they accept. And they, they should have some real concern since their name's going on that patch, but they didn't write it. <laughs> that you know they've adequately reviewed it and they're they're you know it's past whatever test exist and it's you know not going to break things right they often pretty much every time i've been involved directly in a first experiment of intersource at some point they come up with the idea that for stories that are small impact they're not going to go ahead and mentor the contributor they're just going to rewrite it because it's going to be faster that way we won't influence the velocity of the project and I have to remind them over and over again that they're going to be rewriting other people's patches until the end of time if they don't start training the outside people how to make their patches better, make them acceptable, right? 
I find that in that conversation where they have to actually explain what's necessary to somebody that isn't on their team, they're suddenly able to understand why their code needs to be more modular. They're suddenly able to see where the APIs are missing or where, you know, and these are things that their company had been demanding that they figure out, but they couldn't figure out without that conversation. So it's really good for companies to go through this process of adopting intersource. But the question of whether it's going to help open source comes up again and again. And in fact, right now, there's a fashion in the free software community to say that the intersource is, is a, there's a conspiracy led by me, super nefarious conspiracy freak that I am. Open source diva. <laughs> See, well, I didn't name myself that, okay? Somebody else put, my, put that in my <laughs> the business card. best Monica ever. <laughs> and, it, and I had to explain it for a number of years. It wasn't, it wasn't always easy being in the diva, I'm telling you. But there's this idea that I'm somehow in cahoots with Tim O'Reilly and Bill Gates. <laughs> and together, we're going to undermine free software through the media. You're just missing George Soros. That yeah, should I know, be, should I know. be part of the, <laughs> of the group. <laughs> but so far, not so much. No, it's, it, here's the thing. I think that it's the fear that I hear, and I've listened to these presentations, the fears that I'm hearing expressed are kind of like the mirror of the ones we were just talking about inside the proprietary organization. What I'm hearing is, it's going to be less difficult to do intersource than it is to do free software. So people are never going to dive into free software because they don't want the additional pain. And I find it really interesting that they choose to pick on us rather than cleaning up their act, if that's true. There's no reason that it has to be so frustrating to work in, in free software. There's lots of open source projects where that frustration has been minimized by good community hygiene. But it also is telling that some of the people that are making these claims have obviously never actually worked in a big company because they believe, for instance, that HR, the human resources department, is going to keep you from having to deal with trolls inside the company. Like, wow, that'd be great if they could do that. I've never had that experience. <laughs> you know, like they usually just look the other way unless the trolls are actually threatening you anything less, I mean, rudeness is there's no, there, there's definitely no uh, problem with rudeness in, in big companies, in my experience. There should be, but. Denise, how do you see the, um, the connection or the, how do we bridge the gap between, or how inner source is going to help the open source sustainability ecosystem more in general, like the sustain, how do you see that link? Well, let me tell you two stories about two companies that are practicing inner source, and they've talked about this publicly. So one is the classic that I was expecting answer, and it's Comcast. Comcast now, before you're allowed to open source code that you wrote inside of Comcast, and I'm not talking about upstream contribution, I'm talking about starting a new project. Before you're allowed to open source a new project, you must first inner source the project, get people from other parts of your own company to collaborate on it with you so that you know how to do open source and you don't embarrass Comcast. And that's I think that's awesome. a brilliant thing. It's a brilliant idea. We did a lot of open source at Sun, and Sun was already predisposed to open source because we were kind of run like an inner source project you know, inside the company anyway. But we still had problems with Sun teams you know, showing up in open source as a 6,000 pound gorilla instead of being strategically humble, 
answering the question before the community could answer it, that's a bad practice. You want, you want to leave space for the community to rush in and be the expert. If you've already answered the question once, there's probably somebody out there that, that got the answer from you and you should let them tell it instead of you, right? There's lots of stuff like that. We had a hard time teaching them. So doing intersource first is a brilliant, brilliant hack. And that is an example of it helping the sustainability of open source by reducing the number of failed projects that big companies engage in, having open source coming out of companies be more effective, and also training their employees to be better open source participants, right? So that's the first one. And that's the one that I thought would happen. That's why we did it at PayPal. But now the other story is Microsoft, right? Who I, you know, I'll shamelessly say worked very hard <laughs> to force them to understand that open source was going to win. And open source has won. So, and they're now proponents of that, although not everybody. You're only saying that because Bill Gates is paying you, right? Because Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. Well, no, I get a cut of the chips that we're going to be putting in people. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, so... Now, the modern Satya Nadell-run Microsoft is friendly to open source. They did the thing where they had a single initiative that had to win for them to be able to transition their business model away from this doomed business model that they tried to protect with all that FUD, right? So that project that they bet on was Azure. And Azure, in order for Azure to win, it had to be run differently than every other part of Microsoft. So they hired a bunch of people directly out of Apache. They hired the flipping chairman of Apache, right? Ross Gardley. They hired a lot of people right out of Apache and they let them run with Azure. And that has worked for them. You know, it's not exactly taken over from AWS, but it's got a stake that it would not otherwise have had. And they realized that it modernized their approach. So now they're driving that approach back into the rest of their engineering organization through Intersource, through an organized effort to make everybody work in an Intersource way now, which is fascinating to me. Now, how does that help the sustainability of open source? Well, people don't work at Microsoft forever. People come and go in Microsoft. And when they come out, if they're successful, they will all know how to collaborate in an open source way. They'll be able to look for jobs at GitHub and Google and places where that's a commonplace way to work. They will have trained up a new potential workforce that understands open source, which has got to be good for the sustainability of open source. Because once again, there are not enough of us, right? There are more importantly, there aren't enough of us that know how to build community. That is a vanishingly small number of people, actual experts that can tell you how to build community. And that is a bigger and bigger demand, which is, you know, nice for the average salary of community gardeners, but it doesn't scale to the demand we're going to see. So having more people that have been involved in pushing out open source projects and then having to build a community, that's going to be very, very useful. Let's face it. Your code is going to have errors. Even code written by such an outstanding, meticulous, totally awesome developer such as you. But when bad things happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error, uptime, and cron monitoring into a single, easy-to-use platform, saving you time and cash. Honey Badger monitors and sends error alerts in real time, with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding in your code, so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. 
The included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go AWOL or silently fail. Go to honeybadger.io and discover how Star, Josh, and Ben created a 100% bootstrapped monitoring solution. Why is this important? Self-funding means they only answer to you, the developer, rather than a venture capital overlord. Sustain listeners get 30% off for six months. Simply mention Sustain when signing up, and they'll apply the discount directly to your account. No credit card required. Use Honey Badger. It'll make your DevOps awesome. So have you seen a lot of inner source or projects like that were born inner source and then they were released to the wild uh, successfully? I'm just curious if there's like, I think that it's almost like a Petri dish environment and sometimes kind of the wild is a lot wilder than what it is inside of a company. And so like, how does that work? Like, do you have any kind of stories there? Well, I think that we're seeing some, first of all, it's early days, right? We only just recently sort of created Velocity with Intersource. I've been talking about it for four years, but we just finally got a nonprofit set up and, you know, properly tax-free status and everything. And and we're just now starting to engage in affiliate sponsorship stuff to keep that message going. Everything that happened before was done under the auspices of PayPal. So it was seen as a banking thing. So you see more and more intersource in the banking community now, more than ever before. One of the things we do to look at our success rates is we look at job titles or job descriptions that include the term intersource. And we're seeing a massive uptick in that. And it's all coming from financial services and fintech. So there's a whole industry that knows they have to change the way they engineer. And they're looking to intersource to make that happen. Now, in my experience, there's a natural progression from the dawning understanding that you have to change to there starting to be open source projects cropping up. And Finos, the financial open source nonprofit that's now part of the Linux Foundation, has started a GitHub repository for donations from the fintech world that will be more broadly useful. And we're starting to see those. So those are coming through the lens of we have to figure out how to change our engineering what I can't say with 100% certainty is that Intersource was a precursor to all of them because some of them were probably edge open source projects where just a portion of the company was doing it, kind of like the Azure thing originally. That is still a valid way to get into open source, but it's not changing your whole company. In fact, that little group of people almost don't fit in your company any, anymore because you've given them this extra powers and they're not going to go back to the old way of doing things, right? So I think I would argue that going through Intersource to get to open source is probably a more sustainable move for open source because it doesn't make just a few hotshots win. It makes all the engineers win, right? But I do know that Lloyd's, because I did a podcast with the guy who started this project, who's now working for Finos, James McLeod, they were not able to think of how to do open source before they did Intersource. And all of the open source that's come out of Lloyd's went through Intersource first. So we know that's going to happen. And I will say that as I was leaving PayPal towards the end of the middle of year four and a half, they were starting to finally come up with projects that were not going to be embarrassing in the marketplace, right? Because they now understood open source. I think that's such a clever approach. I went to the Finos conference in New York, I think last year, and and the fintech industry is, is an 
it, for me, they were like in the dark ages. Yes, they are. They <laughs> it are. It was amazing. And they have, like, they have no idea. And open source was such a foreign concept to them. And it seems to me that for that particular industry, because obviously FinTech is one of the last ones who wants to open. So transparency in like the financial world is a hard thing to achieve. But you would um, know about that. I would <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think that that kind of industry approach is, is fascinating because like what we were hearing from the, you know, the presenters at, at Finos or the folks from different companies is like, we, we understand that this is how we need to do things, but we have no idea. I have no idea how to even conceptualize it. And this is why they need InnerSource. There are people who work in companies where open source is normal, like Red Hat, who don't understand why InnerSource is a necessary intermediary step. They think it's a a waste of time and that these companies should go straight to open source. And I keep wanting them to go get a job in a fintech company because until you've been inside one, you don't understand how far behind they actually are right? They see a change coming. There's going to be a consolidation in that market. There has to be. What happens is companies grow like mushrooms, right? They get really big and maybe the stock isn't actually big enough to support the size of it, right? But eventually it's too big for that to happen and it either falls over or its near neighbors start absorbing part of it, right? That's what's going to have to happen in fintech because there isn't enough room for them to continue to grow and stagnation is the same as death. So, you know, consolidation is the only thing that can happen. I don't know if you've ever worked in a company that's acquired another company that's trying to harmonize code bases, but InnerSource is your only bet. It is the only way to do it. And most of those mergers are frankly not successful historically because there is no way to think about how to do it. Usually they'll just kill off a part of the company, they'll, they'll cherry pick, you know, well, your APIs are better. So we're going to kill off our APIs, you know, but our risk is better. So we're going to use ours and yours is going to go away. It's a very slow and painful process. And InnerSource is kind of the only way to blend stuff. And that's how PayPal started using it because they had acquired Braintree, creating those synergies and, and deciding who was going to win in the bake-off and all. A lot of that ended up happening in InnerSource. So it was the perfect time for them to have that. But, you know, I went to, my first Finos was in London, maybe two years before the one you went to, Pia. And man, they were, Goldman Sachs was showing off their process for contribution upstream. And it reminded me of the year 1998 (laughs) because there were so many checks and balances and it was so plotting and any engineer that would survive that process deserved, you know, like a medal, right? And, and I said, I didn't say that. What I said was, okay, I think you're going to find in practice that this is not going to work. <laughs> you're going to have to streamline or you're not going to be effective at, if your goal is to actually have upstream contributions, you're going to have to, some of this is going to have to go by the wayside. And they were like, oh, you know, <laughs> but I've seen subsequent drafts as they've tried to implement and they are having to streamline it, of course. So, so you keep talking about how slow the fintech is at realizing open source is great. But you also say, on the other hand, that open source has won. Now, this is really great for me to hear because I spent a lot of time in this podcast basically mourning the state of sustainability with the other person on the call, being like, oh, no, we can't get money. We're all going to have to go get a job at some point. You're talking to too many maintainers. (laughs) I am. I am. So that's 
So I'm really curious when you say open source is one for our listeners and mainly for me, what, do what you does mean? that mean? It means that nothing gets built anymore without open source components in the mix. There was a time when the industry was trying to reject that whole cloth because it wasn't secure. It wasn't sustainable. It was a bunch of different it's, you know, and everybody's gotten past that because they've had to, in order to compete with the few companies that weren't in a position not to take up open source, like Google, there would be no Google if there was not Linux, period, full stop. It would not exist because their cost of acquisition for that kernel and their ability to modify it to their needs meant that they could optimize better than AltaVista, which was the search engine of choice before there was Google. So they're just one example. Any of the, I mean, a lot of them are social media companies, sadly, but any of the companies you can think of that have super high valuations would not exist without open source. So that's what I mean by it won. Now, we are having a bit of a tragedy of the commons moment where not everybody that is extracting value from open source is contributing back to the commons commensurate to the value that they have extracted. And that will kill the movement if we don't convince people to do a better job of that one thing, right? But if they are sitting in their ivory towers or their cathedrals looking down at our bazaar saying, oh, look at those dirty people, you know, <laughs> wow, those, those folks look like some dangerous folks, right? That's never going to get us there. We have to bring the mountain to Muhammad before they can figure out how to be part of this new wave. It's just the way it is. And a lot of the people that are keeping them from going there are timing out in their careers. They're, they're just a bit older than me or they're my age and it's time for them to retire. And that's good news because it means that over time, there will be more willingness to take what feels like a risk. But the groundwork that we lay in getting them to understand inside their own companies why they need to work the way we work. And I don't mean just the whole code review cycle, you know, everybody can review everybody else's code public thing. I mean, modularity, microservices, decent APIs, all the pieces of the puzzle that make open source possible, right? Asynchronous uh, work, uh, non-colocation. You know, if COVID has done one thing right, it's forcing everybody to realize that co-location is not actually that important. So. Speaking to you from central Vermont, I totally understand that. I mean, there's I, no man, one Western in Iowa. this town. Yeah. So, so thank you so much for sharing your perspective. Before we wrap this up, because we are coming up on time, what are you doing now? What's next? What's exciting? Well, aside from getting intersourcecommons.org uh, up and independent of me, which is going to take a while yet, but we're getting there, I am spending a fair amount of time thinking about the construct of the open source program office and how useful it has been inside of the tech companies that have adopted open source, and then looking at how we can use that, leverage that idea to make governments and learning institutions and some of the lagging adopters more empowered to find their way. And we're calling that OSPO++. And we're looking at starting something called the Plus Plus Foundation that is working on that extension and making a network of specifically municipalities and higher learning institutions 
because there's a natural synergy between those two and because we're at an inflection point for both of them, if you can't go to school, if you can't show up in person, then universities have a problem, right? And if you have your whole citizenry suddenly at home needing different classes of services than you're used to offering, you have a problem if you're a municipality. So we're in a perfect moment for both of those folks or those groups to adopt open source in a major way, both as users, but also to start being practitioners a little bit more. And it's complicated by the fact that a lot of municipalities and universities actually use hired, as in occasional, programming resources as their engineering organization, rather than maintaining their own engineers. And my understanding of how the whole industry works, and maybe the whole world, is that everything is on a pendulum. Pretty much every issue exists on a pendulum. Centralized, decentralized, it's classic pendulum that we go back and forth in computing. It's happened three or four times in my career, right? But there's also this pendulum of we have our own programmers, we sub out our programming. We have our own programmers, we sub out our programming. And right now we're at peak sub out your programming. That's not so good for open source because those workers tend to be very occasional. There's no continuity. They make, you know, for instance, lousy maintainers because they're expensive for the mothership to pay for. So getting projects that have been built by independent contractors or contracting houses as getting them to the state where they can be called real open source projects with actual community behind them is even more lift than normal to make a community. And so I'm doing a lot of dabbling in that work and I'm very interested in the body shops and what they expect of their workers because it's not uncommon for contracts to now require open source as one of the outcomes they're looking for. And the body shop will sign on that contract, but they haven't a blooming idea how to do it. And so far, they're not actually delivering on that promise and it's problematic. So we can get all the policies in place that say that if taxpayers are paying for the project, then the code should be open source that we want. But open source is not just publishing the code under license. It's building a community. Publishing the code is just the baby step. And we have to stop using the verb open sourced to mean I threw the code over the wall with an open source license slapped on it because that is not sufficient. So this is, you know, along with getting the intersource commons off the ground, I'm trying to build awareness of this issue within that community. And I'm trying to find people who will take up the work of championing proper open source practice in those body shops. And it's going to be hard but it's going to, it's possible. You know, this is more of helping the 85%, you know, out into the sunshine where we all get to live in open source. So if people want to get involved, where can they find you on the internet? Do you have a blog, oh, Twitter? I am, because of the spelling of my name, I am shockingly easy to find. I would say intersourcecommons.org is a good place. You can, with a free Slack account on intersourcecommons.org, you have the real opportunity of being able to strike up a conversation with me if you wanted to have one. The worst place and the one that most people are using these days, it seems, is LinkedIn because I don't really look at LinkedIn all that often. And so people's queries go unresponded to for long periods of time. But I'm happy to work with anybody that has a shot at, you know, taking on those problems. And I think that all of those problems are about making open source more sustainable. 
Because one more time, we have got to convert more engineers, more existing engineers. We can't grow them fast enough. So we have to go into the ranks of existing engineers and convert them to open source people. And this is the best shot I have at it. So, you know, feel free to join me if you think that's a problem. Thank you. Awesome. Before we wrap up, we have the final part of the call, which is Spotlight, where we highlight awesome projects that have helped us along the way or that need more light or that we just really love for any particular reason. I'll go first. So I want to highlight calm.js. That's calm with a K. This is by Fred Charette. Fred is the champion of open source or used to be the champion of open source at Shutterstock. He is a good friend of mine in Montreal and he's just one of my favorite people because of the way he works. He's had a problem. He works on it at night. He built this whole open source solution and other people sometimes contribute to it, but he is very much a passionate hobbyist doing awesome stuff with JavaScript and more champions like that in companies that aren't really sure how to do open source are totally necessary and help out towards this problem of how do we make inner source work? How do we make open source work? How do we keep things going? So just want to give a shout out to calm.js today. Denise. Yeah. So I think right this minute, COVID green is pretty important. You can find it over on the Linux Foundation Public Health Repository. But I'm going to actually go with a oldie but goodie. You guys all probably saw the news about the layoff that happened at Mozilla. And then there's a subsequent blog post where Tantik Selleck talks about the future that they're trying to build for Mozilla. Like many people, I was really saddened to see that layoff happen, but I read that blog post and it is a very compelling vision that they're trying to go for. Historically, Mozilla, whether people appreciate it or not, has been more than just a browser. It has been the bastion of concern for your privacy in the browsing space. As much as Apple would like to say they are that, I think Mozilla actually is that. And we should be supporting them through this transition. So I will say, have a look at Mozilla. Try to lend them some support because they need it right now. And I don't think we want a world without them. I certainly don't. MDN has been the backbone of my internet existence. Whenever I need to build a website, I go there. So thank you so much for spotlighting them. And thank you so much for coming on this podcast. It was really great to chat with you. Unfortunately, every single time I talk to you, I want to keep talking forever, but that's not sustainable. So thank you again and uh, catch you later. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Pia. Nice to see you again.